I'm very excited to be here today, and um, just want to clear the air a little bit, just kind of share where I'm at with you this morning. Um, I have, hmm, let's see where to go from this. All right, let's start here. I love this church, love it. And one of the things I love about this church is we have this kind of unspoken motto. Maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't, but it's, it goes like this. There are no perfect people allowed. I'm especially grateful for that today because there's no perfect people allowed on stage either. And, and I say that because we serve a God of irony and a God who has a sense of humor. And so when somebody, oh, I don't know, say me, who does a message on joy, um, God thought it'd be funny for me to have to work through that in the past week or two. And not so much experience joy, but experience what it's like to have to get joy. Uh, so it's been a fun past week or two. Uh, sarcasm. Um, but, but, I, but I've been experiencing a lot. God's been teaching me a lot. And, um, and it's, it's been good. And I say that not to have you feel bad for me or anything, but to let you know that this is not something I'm an expert in, not something I have figured out, but something that I'm struggling with you through. Um, and so I hope that you can accept me as that. as nothing more than someone who's trying to experience God's joy as well and trying to live that out. And so like, like Donnie said, three weeks ago, we kicked off this series called Renegade Joy, where we'll be going through the book of Philippians. And um, Philippians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And what we know about Paul is that he is in prison during this time. And so he writes this letter to the church in Philippi, which is a church that he started. So he's in prison, he writes this letter. And you would think that most letters that come out of prisons aren't the happiest of letters. You know, they really, especially coming from somebody who's falsely accused and facing death you know, you'd be really, you think they would be really angry and, you know, talk about how they're innocent and, you know, really upset about their situation, but not Paul. And one of the biggest themes through this letter is, is joy and how he has joy and how his readers can have joy and how we can have joy in Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've been reading through this book for the past couple of weeks as we've been studying it and going through it. And I'm just amazed at how Paul can have the kind of attitude that he does in spite of his circumstances. And so today we're going to be wrapping it up, like Donnie said, finishing up, um, going through chapter 4 of Philippians, and I'd love for you to be able to follow along with me. And so if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to, to have one. The ushers are going to be coming down, and if you, you didn't get a chance to pick one up on your way in or just need to borrow one or don't have one at all, please just signal to them. They'd love for you to have one. And this is our gift to you if, if you want it. Uh, we believe the words in there are true, and they're going to have a real meaningful impact for your life on a daily level. And if you just need to borrow one, please feel free to do that as well. Uh, so before we, we get into chapter 4 and finish uh, talking about what it means to have a renegade joy, I think it's really important for us to kind of look back on where we've been to kind of recap and figure out where we are now. Uh, like we said, Philippians is a short book. It's only about four chapters long, about 104 verses, and it's a real quick read. And if you hadn't had the chance to read through it, I'd really encourage you to do that. I mean, like, before you get out of the parking lot, quick, because if you don't, then you'll get home and life will happen and you'll forget about it. And you'll be like, Phila what? Phila? And so read it. Encourage you. Real short. And it's going to be really good. I know you'll benefit from it. So let's take a look back on where we've been. In chapter 1, we talked about how true joy is really a defiant thing. True joy is about what's going on on the inside, not what's going on on the outside. Having joy allows you to say that I have joy not because of what's going on around me or because of my circumstances, but because of what I have inside. And it's not happiness because happiness is different from joy because happiness comes and goes with our circumstances, but joy lasts. In chapter 2, Paul talked about how there's joy found in unity. And that's a big theme throughout this book as well. It talks about the attitude of Christ, one being of humility and selflessness, and how him being fully God gave up that godliness 
to take on the nature of a servant, to live and to die for us, and how we're supposed to have that attitude, to humble ourselves and to make others more important than we are. And last week, we talked about how we can live free, in chapter 3, live free from the past that holds us back. Paul says in chapter 3, that I press on towards the goal that Christ has gone before, letting go of what's behind. And so Paul calls us to, to let go of what holds us back from taking a hold of what God has for us today, in the present, and in the future. And so as followers of Christ, we've been given this joy, this joy that can withstand anything, this joy that lasts through our circumstances. And, and you've been given the power to withstand those things, but that power and that joy can only come through a relationship with Christ. And so for the first three chapters, Paul's really given his readers some big things to think about, some really hard things to try and live out. And you would think that as he begins to wind down this book, you know, only like 20 or so verses left, and wind, you, you think he would, you know, kind of soften up a little bit, maybe take it easy. Wish him good luck. Here's a little bit of encouragement. Here's an 800 number to call if you're feeling bad or Oprah's on this channel. You know, but not Paul. Paul's not that kind of guy. Paul hears about a disagreement that's going on in the church at Philippi, and so he just dives right into it and addresses this disagreement within the church. And so that's where we are. We, um, chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 2. And it's right here. And if you're using one of these, it's on page 816. Uh, so here we go, chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I know nobody in here has ever experienced any kind of disagreement or argument within a church, right? It just doesn't happen anymore, thing of the past, right? No. Of course it does. Of course it does. And you know why? Because the church is full of humans, and humans are sinful people, and, you know, we mess up, and that's just the way it is. It was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. And so Paul introduces us to these two women who are having a disagreement, two women who are dear friends of his, two women who served alongside of him in ministry, and two women whose names are written in the book of life, which means these are Christian, two Christian women who are having a disagreement. I know this never happens. But here's, so here's what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't give us the reason for their disagreement. I don't know about you, but I hear about you know, two people who are in an argument and somebody's addressing them. I'm like, all right, who's right, who's wrong, who's got the best evidence, and who's going who's gonna to win? Mostly because I want to know and make sure I'm on the right side, not the wrong side. But Paul doesn't give us the source of tension between these two women because, because the source of tension isn't the issue. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to agree in the Lord. And it's pretty easy to assume that what they're arguing about doesn't even really matter. It's not even that big of a deal because if Paul wanted to address the issue, he would. He's not scared to do that. We have in other parts of his letters where he's written to his churches where he addresses very specific issues. Uh, there's one with false teaching. He said, listen, you, what you guys are preaching and teaching is wrong. It's not of God. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. And he deals with specific actions. He says in one of his letters, he says, hey, tell that guy to stop sleeping with his mom. Not a good thing. Shouldn't do that. So if, if the issue was the issue... He would have addressed it. But the issue was that division was being caused. The issue was that unity was being sacrificed. And this is one of the main things I want to talk to you about today. And so if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down uh, so you can read it later and just have it. And not like there's going to be a pop quiz later. And if you get the answer wrong, you're going to have to stay and help tear down. But I would write it down. Um, all right, so, so here we go. When we are unified, Christ is glorified. When we are unified, Christ is glorified. Not only does Paul yearn for his fellow believers 
uh, to be unified and to be one. It's also something that Jesus prays for, prays for for his, all of his disciples, the one he walked with, the ones he walked with on this earth, and the ones to come, all of us. And so he prayed for that. In John 17, verse 11, it starts out, he says, Holy Father, protect them, them being the disciples he walked with. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Then he goes on in verse 20, say, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. And catch this. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Catch that last line? Jesus prays for our unity because our unity lets the world know that God loves them as much as he loves Jesus. Which is a lot, by the way. So our unity isn't even for our own benefit. I mean, our unity does good things for us, right? If we're unified, our lives are better and we get along and happy. But our unity has a direct impact on how the world knows that God loves them. Because when there's no unity, there's no joy. And when we have unity, we're, we're able to focus on Christ and we're able to focus on others and not ourselves. Because what happens when you're in disagreement, you're in conflict, there's no unity? What are we focusing on? Focusing on me, number one. Focusing on how I'm right and how you're wrong and how many people I can get to say that I'm right and you're wrong. So we focus on ourselves and we try to get others to agree with us. What if we actually put into practice what Paul is calling us to do here? What if we, like Jesus, made others more important than ourselves? What if instead of fighting to make other people wrong, we fought to make them right? How would that look? In college, one of the, one of the hardest things I had to do was in, a, was in a debate class. And the teacher split us up according to how we fell or believed on a certain issue or a hot topic. I can't remember what it was on now. Um, but so he split us up on, you know, you guys get for it or against it, pretty much. And then what he made us do is argue for the opposing side. So I had to argue against what I believed. And I thought it was dumb because I knew what I believed and I was right, they were wrong, and that's the end. But apparently you can't get an A in debate class with that kind of argument. So because I wanted to get a good grade, I was studying and doing research and, you know, like trying to get, you know, build an argument for this thing I didn't agree with. And then I realized I have never done this before. I've never actually thought about and studied why I believe what I believe or why they believe what they believe. And, and I came to see validity in their argument and no longer thought they were just wrong because we disagreed. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus wants to make us into a bunch of weirdos who sing Kumbaya all the time and get along and never disagree, because that's not going to happen. I don't even like that song. Um, but, you know, we're human. We have different personalities, different views about different things, and that's okay. But here's the question. How can we have different views but still be agreeable, still have joy? Paul goes on to say in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. When people think about you or your friends, or even people who aren't your friends, maybe more especially people who aren't your friends, is gentleness a word they would use to describe you? I don't think that would be the, the case for me, especially if you've played Ultimate Frisbee with me. See, gentleness, it isn't easy, and it's not something that should be taken lightly. It, it leads to losing ourselves but gaining Christ. It leads to losing our arguments and opportunity to have really cool, witty comebacks for the sake of unity. Gentleness describes the ability to extend the kind of consideration we wish we would get. And someone who's gentle knows how to forgive 
when justice gives them the right to condemn. And somebody who's gentle knows when it's actually wrong to make yourself look right. This, uh, about a week ago, I got an email from someone who's very close to me who I'm kind of in conflict with. Um, our relationship's just kind of struggling. And uh, they wouldn't talk to me on the phone or even text me. So they sent me an email, and it was not a pleasurable reading experience. Um, just tearing me apart and just not fun. I was so angry because it was, I mean, it was wrong. And I wanted to respond in big, bold, bright red, all cap letters after every line and be like, here's where you're wrong. Here's where I'm right. Here's where you're wrong. You know, and I, oh, Italian temper whew, through the roof. Just like, um, but then, then I remembered I'm preaching a message on unity, <laughs> joy, gentleness. And so actually with Cynthia was like, are you preaching on gentleness? Yes. Um, thanks. Um, so I mustered every bit of gentleness that was within me and responded as softly as I could and briefly. And um, I don't know what's, what's going to come of it. I haven't heard back and um, don't know what's, what's going to play out. But I know that I don't regret my actions. I know that my heart is, is uh, good with God because I, I responded in a way I think he would have had me respond. Uh, and it, it wasn't easy. I wanted to be angry. Um, but this verse was staring me in the face. See, we've got we've to fight for unity. And most of the time with ourselves, because in disagreements we have to work even harder for unity because unity transcends right and wrong. And this doesn't mean we have to be afraid of disagreements. But we have to allow disagreements even still to happen, but not at the sacrifice of unity. Because when unity is sacrificed through our disagreements, Christ is not glorified. So not only does Paul want us to have joy relationally, he wants us to have joy mentally and emotionally. In verse 6, he goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything. That's a lot. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So write this down. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Anybody in here ever been anxious? Anybody worry? You ever lay down at night to go to sleep, but you're so stressed out and your mind is so wrapped about what happened that day that you can't sleep, or you're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow and just how stressed out you are and you can't sleep and you know you need a good night's sleep because what's going to happen tomorrow, but you can't sleep because you're stressed out about tomorrow. And then you get more stressed out because you know you're going to be tired tomorrow because you can't sleep. And it's just this endless cycle. You're freaking out about the littlest things. And here, you ever do this? I did this all the time. You ever get upset about something that hasn't even happened? Something that may not even happen. I, oh, I picture like a potential argument or conflict that's going to happen, and I have the argument in my head, like with the person. And like they'll say something, I picture what they're going to say, and they say it, and, and I have this really cool witty comeback and kind of stick it to them, but because I'm never as cool in my head as I think I am, they come back with something even better, and I just get so angry. And I'm so mad that something hasn't even happened. And Cynthia's like, what's the matter? And I'm just so mad about this. And she's like, it didn't even happen. I'm like, I know. And I get upset about these things that, you know, more than likely just isn't even going to happen. And at that point, I have to ask myself, and this is never a fun question. I have to ask myself, who is ruling over me? Who rules over me? Is it anxiety or is it God? Next time you're anxious or angry or stressed out, ask yourself that question. Who is ruling over me? Is it anxiety or is it God? 
Now, I'm not going to doubt that this life causes anxiety because it does. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today or else Paul wouldn't have been talking about it. But how do, we, how do we handle being anxious? How do we get a grasp for anxiety? I think one of the first things we have to do is, uh, is define it, help us kind of get a better understanding of what it is. And so I've come up with a definition for anxiety. And so here it is. Um, anxiety is anticipating the future in the worst possible scenario and then freaking out about it. Okay? And I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing. All right? Hey, Paul, you don't understand. I have a terrible drive to work, and nobody in Raleigh knows how to drive except for me. And I hate my job, and I work in a cubicle. My boss is an idiot, and I can't even watch the show The Office because it's not even funny. It hits too close to home. All right? Listen, Paul's in a Roman prison in the first or second century facing death. He gets it. All right? And so here's what he tells us to do about being anxious. Here's, he gives us two things to do. One, he tells us to pray, to talk to God. And you may not want to pray or talk to God about what you're struggling with or what you're anxious about because you think he's going to be disappointed in you. He won't. And here's what's even better is he already knows. You're not going to catch him off guard. He's God. So, I mean, he wants you to talk to him. But he already knows there's comfort in that. You're not going to surprise him or come up and be like, you know, God, I'm really struggling with this and just this has been really struggling with mine. And he's going to be like, oh, I had no idea. I mean, I know we haven't talked in a while, but really, he knows. So here's something to think about. Ask yourself this. Who is the first person you're most likely to contact when you're anxious? Is it God or is it somebody else? Are you, are you praying and asking God for peace? Or are you calling your friends and trying to make yourself feel better, see who's on your side? Something to think about. Uh, the second thing he tells us to do, he tells us to meditate, to focus our minds and since anxiety is mostly a mental thing, he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, yep, that should cover it, think about such things. What sort of things are you thinking about? What are you, what are you setting your mind on? See, Paul knows that our thought life has huge ramifications on how we live, and what we allow to occupy our mind is going to live out in what we see and what we say and what we do. The mind is a battlefield, and you've got to fight to take control of it. So instead of just deciding to stop being anxious, and just hit that switch, um, instead of deciding to stop doing it, let's replace those thoughts. Trade lies for truth, gossip for what's honorable, impure for pure. Let's remove the things in our mind that don't bring glory to God and trade them for things that lift God up, that things of him. And in verse 9 he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. God is offering his peace to us. And we can accept that peace. Allow that peace to, to permeate your life. Because if you're living a life that's filled with anxiety, let me ask you this. Is it working? I mean, is, is your anxiety allowing you or anyone around you to better connect to God? Because a life lived wrapped up in anxiety is a miserable life. So do not be anxious. Pray. Focus your mind. The last thing I want to talk to you about, one of the next verses, uh, is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. And I've known this since I was a kid, been saying it since I was a kid, been hearing it since I was a kid. And you probably know this or have heard it at least once, and it starts in verse 11. Uh, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength.
I learned a different version of this growing up, Philippians 4.13, but I learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've been saying it since I was a kid and been, had, had it said to me since I was a kid, and I would use it for the craziest of things. Like a test I didn't study for, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. A game I wanted to win, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. A girl I wanted to ask out, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Trust me, I needed all the help I could get. Now, it's not necessarily bad to think like this, um, but it's not how Paul's using this phrase. He says, I have learned the secret to being content in both extremes. I know what it's like for my life to fall apart. I know what it's like to be in harmony with everything around me. I know what, it, know what it's like to, to make it through this chaos called life, whether people love me or people hate me. It's trusting in God in such a way that I can say I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This, uh, this whole chapter has seemed to encompass my life for the past week or so. I, I really feel like you know, I'm living it out. And I have people who are close to me who are in conflict, and I want desperately for them to agree and to have joy. Uh, I want them to be gentle with each other and to love each other. Uh, I'm incredibly anxious because I know at any minute I can get an email or a phone call that just rocks my world, and my mind is wrapped up in anxiety for those who are around me and for myself. And I can't think of anything but the worst possible scenario. It affects the way I live, it affects the way I love, and it affects the way I connect to God and how I help others connect to God. But there's something that, that I've been learning through all this. And it's something that, I, that I've known for a long time, but continually learning this, and it's that circumstances do not dictate truth. Our circumstances change. What goes on around us changes. But Christ doesn't change. God's promises stand true. And the words of Paul here in chapter 4 remind us and encourage us of how to have joy. Words like, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The God of peace will be with you. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about these things. Do not be anxious about anything. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Let your gentleness be known to all. Agree with each other in unity. What would it look like for us to be content in all things? What would it look like for us to trust in the promises of God more than the lies of this world? So here's the truth. Jesus loves you and cares deeply for you. And he wants what's best for you. And you can have joy in your relationships no matter how broken they may seem. And you can have joy fill your mind no matter how stressed out you are. But that kind of joy can only come from Christ that kind of joy can only be discovered in connecting with God. You can't produce it and you can't fabricate it. And if you believe that you've found that kind of joy outside of a relationship with Christ, then you're believing a lie. And if you believe as a follower of Christ that you cannot have that kind of joy because of your circumstances or whatever's going on around you, then you are believing a lie. Through unity, through prayer, through setting our thoughts in the things of God, we can have that joy, a joy that doesn't make sense to this world, a joy that lasts, a joy that knows no bounds, a defiant joy, a renegade joy. So, in the words of Paul, rejoice always. When? Always. When? Always. When? Always. Rejoice Always. Say it again. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your joy, 
for the power that's available to us. God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and, and to dive into your word and to listen to the Apostle Paul and what he's calling us to do and how he's calling us to live. And God, I pray that while it's really easy to live that out here in this place when people are happy and we're joyful and you know we want to be that and there's not many dis- disagreements and we get along here, I pray that we can live that out out there where it feels like our joy is being sucked out of us, where it feels like our circumstances are taking over us, where our mind is being filled with anxiousness and stress. God, I pray that the words that were spoken today that, that weren't of you, that they will, uh, they will have fallen on deaf ears. God, I pray that you allow us to have the strength. Give us the opportunity to have the strength to live out this kind of joy. And as we, as we have already sung, God, you are for us. So what can stand against us? Help us remember that nothing can we have your power within us. We thank you for your love and for what you're doing, and we thank you for the, the honor and the pleasure it is to be a part of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.